Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guests for this episode, all the way from Sector 13 itself, it's Peter Duncan. Peter, welcome to the book club. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, it's great. We're going to be talking about an interesting book uh, or a story in a moment. But to begin with, as we always do, tell us your 2000 AD origin story. I was a, uh, whenever 2000 AD started out, I was 17. And there was an awful lot of very interesting music going on at the time. And so I wasn't reading comics at the time. Right. Uh, and in fact, it was about three years later, whenever I was more interested in American comics, I bought a batch of back issues. And it was through a batch of back issues that I, I got to know the comic. I have to be honest, I wasn't aware of it. I read it in that way through batches of back issues for about five years uh, and then read it weekly from about 85 through to 95. And then after that, it was mostly in collected editions until I became editor of the Sector 13 uh, fanzine about three years ago. And I did a major catch-up reading 600 weekly issues in the last two to three years so <laughs> right i'm just about caught up now fantastic okay yes we'll be talking about sector 13 uh, later on in the podcast okay so let's get straight to it tell us what you've picked for uh, this journey to the book club i picked the main arena which was a sports strip that appeared first in issue 178 in prague 178 lasted through i think to 282 uh, where it kind of petered out. But it was among the strips that drew me first to 2000 AD. It was the one that had a, a huge immediate appeal whenever I, I started to read the, the strip. And although it varied in quality, it was the sort of one of the anchors that kept me reading. Okay, so as you say, those early days of the prog, uh, we're going to be talking about Tom Tully's writing. There's a little bit of somebody called A. Ridgeway writing in there towards the end. Uh, John Richardson, Steve Dillon, John Johnston, Eric Bradbury and Mike White. And of course, this was under the original editorship of the Mighty One himself and Sector 13 fan, Steve McManus. So, it was, uh, yeah. And I've got in front of me uh, 2000 AD Extreme Editions, 26 to 28, which uh, we were, I was thinking was possibly, and there you've got your saying there as well, I can see on the Zoom video, um, was possibly the only collected editions of this story, but you said it might have been featured in the best of 2000 AD book, which we were struggling to find yes. a copy of. According to the Barney uh, webpage, the first five episodes were in the Prion book, which I've never bought. And it was also reprinted in the Quality Bad Company comic as a backup strip. Oh, right. They look, didn't work in colour. And the Extreme Editions seem to be sadly out of print now, so you're going to have to scrabble to get hold of them. Um, let's start, Peter. You mentioned that this was one of the uh, strips that really sort of kept your interest in 2000 AD. What was it about Mean Arena that uh, was so alluring and why have you chosen it for the book club? Well, I was always interested in sports strips. Um, one of my favourite comics as a kid was Scorcher. Even though I didn't like football, I liked football strips. 
and I'm particularly interested in future sports, um, you know, things like rollerball and Death Race 2000, that sort of idea. A main arena fitted into this really well. Um, it also seemed to be in the same vein as Inferno, uh, which had been a, a fantastic strip in a slightly earlier time in 2008. So whenever I saw it, it was one of the things that kept me coming back week after week to see more. And Tom Tully was good at sports strips, the writer. Yes, he was indeed, and we'll talk about him in just a moment. For anybody who hasn't read Mean Arena, uh, you mentioned futuristic sports. What's the concept uh, of the game and also the plot of the story for Mean Arena? Well, one of the big things I find with sports strips, future sports strips in particular, is quite often the games aren't well thought through. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit like the Quidditch problem in, in Harry Potter. Basically, there's no point in anybody else taking the field with the way the game's laid out. It's all up to the seeker. Most future sports games are a little bit like that. This was a really well thought through sport as a game. And so it was going to make for good stories. Um, every, every different player type had a reason for existing, a reason to be visually different from the others and a reason to be there. Uh, so it was a very well thought through sport and that was obvious from the beginning um, so that appealed there was also the, the, the plot going behind it which was that a major player from America who was supposedly dead had turned up at a British third division sport uh, um, mean arena team's ground to play for them sorry I should have said the actual game itself was American football, basically played on a large area of its town, which had been abandoned by its inhabitants. It followed the same trope as most future sports things where the game had become very violent. The players were not important. Their health was not important. And deaths would occur all the time. So it was filling in all those gaps um, but in a game that was effectively American football with a goal and a shortstop with a rifle. So it was uh, it was an interesting idea. And the basic idea was Matt Talon had appeared from America and was investigating what had happened to another player who had been killed unnecessarily. So he was looking at corruption and murder. In, in a way, it was a murder mystery. Uh, yes, his uh, his sort of like quest for vengeance and uh, revenge throughout the series of Mean Arena, um, and then of course all that wonderful future sports action that keeps happening in most issues. Um, okay, let's start with Tom Tully. You've mentioned him, great at writing sports. Probably best known for writing Roy of the Rovers, uh, the main writer from 1974 to 1993 on Roy of the Rovers, although I think he carried on writing the odd bit until the Roy of the Rovers comic folded in 95. But he'd also, um, I mean, he's got a lot, he had a long career, didn't he? He started in the early 60s. I don't know if he's written any of the Steel Claw that's going to be in the uh, Treasury of British Comics collection next year, but I know he did. He did write some Steel Claw, some Adam Eterno. Um, he'd already written Death Game 1999 for action and, of course, some Harlem Heroes, and you mentioned Inferno for 2000 AD. What, what was it about 
Tom Tully's writing that made him so sort of suited to these sports comics uh, that was such a big feature in the 70s and 80s? He was, he was sort of the ultimate professional writer. Um, he wrote quickly and he wrote a lot. I, I remember hearing, I think it was Pat Mills, in a, another 2000 AD podcast, quoted him as saying that uh, he could write two stories a day and that he made more money than the Prime Minister. Yes. So <laughs> he had his priorities. He knew what his priorities were. And in terms of a sports strip, the idea is to have an overarching plot that keeps going like a soap opera, but doesn't actually change very much. So you keep that background churning over and then you go game by game. And that gives you a dramatic portion, a a distinct storyline within a story that is each game. And Tom Tully was so good at that. Um, You could see it in Roy and the Rovers and certainly even in Inferno. Inferno was one long story but it all had these short segments that gave you a satisfying ending every few episodes with each individual game. And Mean Arena started in the same way. And does it, as you say, does it work partly because you've got that well-thought-out future sport, but also this vengeance issue, uh, ongoing story that weaves through it? What's Matt Talon come back for? Who's he come to sort of, you know avenge and who's he seeking down is it that combination that works best i think that's what it is i think it's the fact that you've got this overarching plot that does keep moving forward um but you have these individual games and the nature of the games was that each of the weird teams um would be visually different and would allow you a different set of gimmicks for each of the games so you could have four or five episodes that covered one game with the Southampton Sharks, who dressed as sharks and had massive teeth, and um, I think their their pitch might have been called the Shark Pit. So you were able to have an individual short story that moved on, came to an end quite quickly, but an overarching plot that kept people coming back, and that was the idea behind it, I'm sure. And it was a big hit with the readers, so much so that it became a regular thing for the readers to send in their own team names and designs. And then they, some of those become part of the strip itself, don't they? That's right. Yeah, the letters page used to contain drawings by, um, by, by various fans who'd sent in and their own home team. And they, Tom Tully did build that in. I suppose, again, that was another of Tom Tully's wee shortcuts. Um, that the professional writer uses. If somebody sends you in an idea for a team, well, it saves you having to come up with one. Yeah, and I think because the Edinburgh Exterminators turn up, I think they were a fan suggestion. There's a team later on called Vlad's Vampires, and there was, a again, a reader suggestion for the Y Valley Vampires and a, and a costume design. Because, as you said, they all have their own weird... Uh, street football costume, which impro- you know includes some aspects of the team name. Um, we've got the Slayers with the sort of death's heads on the front of their armour, but vampires, sharks. Um, the ants is a particularly memorable one. There's a team of ant designs who's just uh, who do seem to swarm over players. So the fan involvement, I just think that's a great story. I can't think of too many other 2008 strips that so much embraced the fans' contributions, and actually put them on the page. I don't know, are there any other examples that come to mind? I'm not sure. I, I, 
I have to say, Mina Reno almost seemed like a a strip that didn't belong so much in in 2000 AD. It it seemed to be a strip from somewhere else that had been brought in. And in a way, I think I, I spoke to Steve McManus about this a while ago, and Steve had mentioned that he actually found it difficult to get somebody to draw the strip. Um, nobody wanted to do it. It didn't have that 2000 AD feel to it, which which I thought was interesting. Although when Tom Tully brought in the other teams and the violence and the level of violence that it featured, I think he, he made it a 2000 AD strip. But initially, I think the idea was that it, it quite a lot of the people didn't feel it, it belonged. And I'm interested that, you know, sports comics, particularly for British comics readers, was such a huge thing, 60s, 70s, 80s, so that even when comics like Action and 2000 AD came along, they had to have a sports strip in them. Uh, you know, famously, Harlem Heroes starts in Prog 1, uh, goes on to almost end the comic with the uh, Inferno saga and the uh, outcry that caused. And then here he is again with another future sports. It, it, to me, it seems almost perfect early 2018 in a way. You know, science fiction, uh, ultraviolence, a revenge story in there, the weird and wacky costume designs. It seems to me like it's just got all the features. So I'm actually slightly surprised that Steve McManus was struggling to find artists to draw it. I think that was a time when things were beginning to change in 2018. And it was, it was under Steve. It found a new attitude and it found a new time. And I, I think you're right. The very early 2000 AD is a standard British comic with science fiction themes. I always thought that Steve McManus, whenever Steve became editor, that it changed and it became its own thing, um, and began to appeal to a lot of fans of American comics at that stage as well which it hadn't done really previously. So I, I understand what you're saying. I, I must admit, I thought that Tom Tully hadn't quite got what had come with Steve, you know, the changes that had come with Steve, and he was still writing the older style comics, whereas um, with Steve McManus, there was a there was sort of punk attitude. Yeah, I think... And, and there was a sort of punky feel to British or to 2000 AD then, wasn't there? Particularly, as you say, when Steve took over um, and some of the other strips and the, some of the characters were introduced. And then this wonderful sports strip, uh, Mean Arena. Let's mention the artists. It starts with John Richardson, who co creates it with Tom Tully. I, for some reason in my head, I always thought of Mean Arena as a Steve Dillon strip. But when I reread it this time, there's actually, there wasn't that much Steve Dillon. Uh, quite a lot of Mike White towards the end. And there's even some Ed, Eric Bradbury in there. What did you make of all the different artistic takes on the the game and the characters? Well, I, I like John Richardson's take on it to start with. But although... Um, Again, Steve McManus has said that Steve Dillon did quite a lot of the design, the initial design in the strip. So whenever he took it over, I think that that was him returning to work he had previously set up. Uh, but I, I like John Richardson's take on it. It was very dark and gritty. Um, I think the first couple of episodes with John Richardson are excellent. Uh, I think they look really well. They're very atmospheric, very dark. 
but later on, it looks like he appears to rush. And Steve McManus has said that there were real deadline problems, not just with with uh, the early days, but all the way through uh, Main Arena. Yes, and it, you know, I noticed that I I was reading your blog about the history of uh, sports stories in 2000 AD, which I will mention a bit later on, because as you say, his early work looks very accomplished, has wonderful sorts of lots of ink on the pages, the very sort of. Um, dark setting that they're playing this game in and then later on some of the issues it does look like they were running into deadline troubles and it does look a bit rushed in places doesn't it it does indeed um, the backgrounds seem to suffer they they disappear effectively yes uh, uh, so but it's it's it is those first two episodes maybe the first three that are among the best in the entire series. I think Steve Dillon, Steve Dillon's work has a certain something to it. And I think that's what most people remember. Yeah. The sort of like definitive image for me, I think is Steve's cover for two, two six. And then again, some of his artwork that he did for the interiors. But as I say, it was actually, I was actually less Steve Dillon than I was expecting when I read through it in the last few days. Um, you know, it is, you say, more John Richardson, and then Mike White takes over for a real chunk of it towards the end. Although, you know, we might say that the story quality starts to become a bit variable from then on. Um, yeah. Is it John Richardson's that stands out most for you? It is. It's those first two episodes. They, right. they would be my favourites. Although I, I do really like Steve Dillon's. His covers are fantastic. Yes. Uh, I think the the covers are just wonderful, um, but I think um, overall John Richardson's first couple of episodes are would be the the, the art that I would keep coming back to. And uh, along the way, we had covers by John Richardson himself. Brian Bolland did a sort of team uh, images cover. We got the Steve Dillon cover. There's a Mike White cover. You know, Mean Arena, obviously a popular strip because it made the cover several times. And I should also mention that there is some Eric Bradbury art in there, which is, uh, I'm a particular fan of Eric Bradbury's work. Um, I know from your blog that you thought he perhaps wasn't the best fit for a sort of science fiction sports story. Yes, I, I would be a fan of Eric Bradbury too, but I didn't think it worked really. I certainly didn't think that the... Uh, is it Mark White? Mike White? Mike White, Mike I White. Think. I didn't think Mike White... I, I thought it looked, again, it looked Russian deadline difficulties seemed to be coming to bear there too. As ever, the problems of bringing out a weekly comic for Steve McManus and his teams. Yes, yes. Uh, perhaps should mention that as we go on, we get some other story features, uh, androids, um, particularly a robot child bodyguard, um, a weird tentacled robo-doctor. I don't know what it is about 2000 AD and robot doctors, but they always go berserk. <laughs> <laughs> um, meanwhile, Matt Talon's ongoing search for vengeance for his kid brother. There's also the bad guys are introduced at one point. Are they called the Malevolent Seven? Yes. And they look great, but they don't seem to play as much part in the story as I thought they were going to. That almost looks like something that was um, thought of and then almost dropped. Yes, it does seem that way, doesn't it? So I, I wonder, there was, there was 
there was a change in writer towards the end. And I don't know what happened there. Tom Tully maybe got a better offer somewhere else or, or uh, I, I know he was guaranteed a certain number of pages by IPC. And uh, if he got something that was selling better, he perhaps went there instead. Right. So let's talk about another issue connected to Mean Arena, one that I only discovered from reading your blog, Peter, because how should we put it? Let's let's say that comics of this era in British comics were fairly well known for what Pat Mills referred to as the cribs, i.e. taking some other story or some other media and adapting it into a comic book form probably without due care and attention uh, to rights and royalties and so on, because you found the curious origins of Mean Arena, perhaps. I think so. I, in, in about 1984, 1985, I was working in a bank, and I had a particularly boring job to do, and I developed the skill of counting money and reading at the same time. And so I went to a second-hand bookshop in Belfast called Harry Halls that all comics fans in Belfast will know and bought a book called Killer Bull by Gary K. Wolfe, who went on to write uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This was his first book. And it was described as deadlier than Rollerball, uh, the explosive shock novel of tomorrow's killer sport. And on the cover was someone who looked exactly like they belonged in the main arena, which had been a strip I'd really liked. So I read it in two settings, and it's quite an odd book. It's written in the first person like a movie treatment, uh, but it was main arena. It literally was main arena. The game was exactly the same. The subplots were the same. It was the same story. And I was horrified that someone would have stolen a strip from 2000 AD and written a novel about it and passed it off as their own work until I checked the publication date. And it had been published two years before Main Arena. And when it was published in Britain, it was published by one of the publishing houses of IPC. Ah, right. And you looked at it and uh, the story was moved to America, uh, but it was exactly the same story. And it was closer, as you say, there's been a long history of borrowing stories. You know, some of the future shocks were obviously based on classic science fiction short stories. Medivac 318, it borrowed really heavily from the Sector General stories by James White, who's from a science fiction writer from Belfast, and even Halo Jones book three. You know, there's a lot there that comes from Joe Hadelman's Forever War, mm. but it was always taking concepts and changing them. Mean Arena, it was the same story. Oh. It was a blatant ripoff. And whenever I find out about this, I actually spoke to Steve McManus about it. And his memory of Mean Arena was that Tom Tully had come to him with it, saying that it was based on a street football game from Holland. Right which was a type of soccer. But if you read the main arena, it's not based on soccer. It's based on American football. It's based on this book. So we had this, was this plagiarism? So I actually went and had a word with Gary Wolf, who wrote it. I contacted him online and he knew about it. 
someone had sent him copies of the Extreme Editions. Oh, this right. Was more recently when I did the blog. Someone had sent him copies of the Extreme Editions, so he was well aware of it. And as far as I'm aware, he contacted Rebellion, which might go some way in explaining why Mean Arena has not been reprinted since. Yes, and hasn't turned up in the Ultimate Collection or anything like that. Yeah. And it does it, I mean, when they were producing comics like Action in 2000 AD, I, I don't think they had any idea that these would be become collector's items, that they would be talked about, that, you know, people would end up doing blogs and podcasts about them in the future. They just thought, I presume, it was the weekly disposable entertainment that would be read and passed on and thrown away. Um so I don't suppose it occurred to them that actually people might come looking later on for the connections between all these cribs. I mean, we've talked, you know, we talked about Rollerball, we've talked about Dirty Harry, we talked about the influence of Jaws on Hookjaw and so on. Um, so yes, Mean Arena seems to have been based on something else, but it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting comment on disposable comics in those times, isn't it? Yeah, I... I- I actually think this one's slightly different in that even Pat Mills has talked about the changes he made to Jaws and to Hook Jaws. Uh, I think Tom took a shortcut here. Right. Um, and maybe didn't make the changes because Killer Bull was not a successful novel. It was a throwaway pulp story um, at the time. Gary Wolf didn't have much success with it. It was the Roger Rabbit books that made his name. And if he hadn't written the Roger Rabbit books, I suspect nothing would have come of it. You know, he, mm-hmm. his writing career wouldn't have gone on and this would have simply been forgotten. So you do wonder how many other times this has happened, but this was one that was more obvious than others, I think. Yes, it does. Yes, as you say, more of an obvious rip-off in a way or a um, direct take from. And, of course, Tom Tully passed away sadly in 2013 we can't ask about his recollections of it uh, he'd retired from comics when Roy the Rovers finally folded and went off to run a pub so um, yes uh, you know hopefully he was doing all right in his retirement because as you say at one point when he was writing Roy of the Rovers he did have that famous statement that he was earning more money than the Prime Minister amazingly British comics back in the day eh <laughs> <laughs> he was, as I said, he was one of the, the writers who had a guaranteed number of pages and stories in so many different strips. He was, you know, he was the ultimate professional. And when you look at things like Steel Claw that he wrote and Adam Eterno, you know, those were quite revolutionary for their day mm. um, and were excellent stories. He was a very, very good writer. I do wonder if. Part of the reason why Main Arena went off the rails a little bit was that this was too close to somebody else's idea and that he didn't quite have a handle on it. Right. I've always wondered that. It's not something you see in any of his other work. Yes. And it's interesting that he doesn't finish it, that another writer takes over at the end to finish the story. Because, as you say, yes. he was incredibly prolific, right? He could write two two strips a day or two stories a day. Uh Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the action itself in Mean Arena. Any particular favourite matches or moments um, from the whole run of Mean Arena? Again, most of what I really liked came fairly early on. You have 
you have some very interesting ideas and rule changes. So you've, at, at the end of one episode, somebody declares that Matt Talon is a droid, yes. which means he's allowed to kill him. That sort of idea, that, that was one of the most dramatically done episodes. That was in, I think that's in the first, the first game of all. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, when it's revealed that he's got a bionic hand, isn't it? And you do see at one point uh, Talon himself kills a droid, uh, kills a player, and is accused of being a murderer, uh, but it turns out he's a droid. So there was some interesting moral aspects to this in that um, what was terrible for the opposition to do was entirely okay for the team. So we had this idea that we were supporting a team, which was an interesting aspect. There's also the interesting aspect where a player can play what's known as the Black Ace, uh, I think, or the Death Ace, is it? Which means that... The Black Ace. The Black Ace, which means that they can, if they score a goal, they're going to win half a million or a million dollars. But in all, it, it also means the opposition can now use live ammo. They have a, a hidden safety <laughs> with a sniper's rifle and one bullet that they can use. Um, was that something that came from Killer Bowl? There was a sniper in Killer Bowl. Right. I'm not, I don't remember the Black Ace, but there was certainly uh, a sniper. So that did come from it. I must say, I did like, uh, as well as the Black Ace episodes, I also liked the uh, the Maniac Robot Doctor and um, the the game against the Vampires team was great fun as well, particularly for the sort of the setting of that and the sort of horrific, uh, you know, it goes very gothic for a while. They're playing in what appears to be graveyards and crypts where they score. So that was great fun. And you mentioned the ants, which were visually one of the most interesting ideas uh, and the different the idea of that, that each team had a different style of play based on their costume basically yes that's was right it was it was the thing that kept the game going and kept the, 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 the interest in the strip going and if we stick with the art and the designs um i suspect i know where we're going with this but what would be your grail pages which artists would you pick out you mentioned one already, which would be Steve Dillon's covers would be one of those. But to be absolutely honest, that very first page, the main arena, the very first page of John Richardson's, I think that first panel is yep. among the best things in the entire comic. It just somehow, there's so much action in that opening panel that that page is probably my favourite in the whole series. And that's almost... Uh, a metaphor for what happened with it. I, I think Main Arena started as being something that could have been fantastic and sadly petered out. Um, it's it's one of the uh, one of the strips that could have been something more than it, it was. Had the promise to be something great, but as you say, various problems, deadlines, uh, and perhaps Tom Tully losing interest or, you know, um, not being able to go with it any further meant that it never became the great strip. Although, as I say, incredibly popular at the time, a huge hit with the fans. Yes, and I really enjoyed it at the time. It, it, it was on rereading it. It doesn't reread as well as other strips at the time. Um, but at the time, it was the, the first thing that really grabbed me about 2000 AD. 
So we're going to grant you Prog 226's cover by Steve Dillon and the first page of The Mean Arena by John Richardson as your grail pages, and I'll post them as ever up on all the socials when this episode comes out. Um, yeah, I mean, like I say, I my particular memory was of Steve Dillon's work, but I was quite surprised that uh, he wasn't in it as much as I expected to. Um, John Richardson's great stuff. I liked. I like Eric Bradbury when he turns up as well. Um, although, as you say, he may not be the best fit for a science fiction comic like this one. But yeah, great stuff. Um, fascinating. So, as we say, Peter, if you want to track down Minerina, you're going to either have to go at the moment to the original progs or see if you can get copies of Extreme Editions 26, 27 and 28 sadly as i say now out of stock on the 2000 ad store and they might i suppose they might have just let those go out of stock in view of the the issues about who came up with the idea originally interestingly enough gary wolf had a kickstarter i think at the end of last year but didn't reach its target for a comic book version of mean arena but i understand that something else happened there and it's possible that that will turn up but it was it was the Oh, with Killer Bowl around the main arena. Yeah, a Killer Bowl comic. Oh, right. And as um, I know from your blog that he'd also had some, I think, low-budget Italian movie made of it, again, without his knowledge. Is that right? Or something that yes. seems to be inspired by it. Yes, which I haven't managed to track down. But if I do, I'd certainly be interested in seeing it. Yeah, I noticed in, on your blog he said himself that if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, He's a very flattered writer. I think there was another movie that the same Italian crowd made that was basically the start of one of his short stories and the end of another. Right. He said... Fantastic stuff, Peter. Thank you for picking it. I really enjoyed going back and reading this one um, and also finding out some of the backstory to it, which is intriguing for this period of British comics, when, as you say, they were doing... Uh, maybe better disguised or changed cribs in other areas. But anyway, great stuff. So, Peter, guest projects time. Let's turn to Sector 13. You are the editor of the Sector 13, the Belfast 2008 fanzine. Tell us about that. When did that start and how did it, be, uh, how did it come into uh, to being? It started around the time of the 40th anniversary. Um, there's a Belfast 2008 fan group that was called Sector Sector House 13, um, that met once a month in Belfast, and we decided we wanted to do something for the 40th anniversary. A fanzine was suggested, and because the group consisted of a lot of uh, cosplayers, we decided to do a photo story featuring the cosplayers as part of our fanzine. And the first issue kind of came about without any organisation at all. It was total chaos. Um, but we managed to get it published uh, one week before the Enniskillen Comics Festival, which that year had a fantastic lineup of 2080 creators. Indeed, every year has a fantastic lineup, lineup of 200, 2080 creators. It's an excellent comics festival. And we managed to get our first issue out with 24 hours to spare. It was 24 pages, A4, um, some full colour, some black and white. And we've gone on from there. And we've produced six issues now. There is a seventh 
almost ready, but we held off because our main sales are uh, at conventions. And obviously this year there haven't been any. No. But we will have an issue seven ready as soon as we can have one ready. We're now at 44 pages. Uh, we're a lot of full colour. And I think I would have to say that we've improved dramatically in production and the standard of writing, the standard of artwork. Um, we're having a ball with it. And I've got in front of me issue six, uh, which you were very kind enough to send to me, because I think I think we were due to meet up at the Enniskillen Comic Fest this year, because that's like everything else cancelled, unfortunately. So it's taken us till November to get round to actually setting up a Zoom recording. Um, and as you say, you've got a photo story of cosplayers. You've got Will Simpson in there uh, with a story of his called. Uh, let's see. Horse Sense. Horse Sense by Will Simpson, uh, written and drawn by him, which is fantastic. I'm particularly taken, of course, as you know, with the Julia Round story. You've got Julia Round to write a uh, sort of misty-inspired cautionary tale uh, with art by Morgan Brinksman called Borrowed Time. That was great fun. How did you get Julia involved? I'd read Julia's two books. Ah, right. Uh, and I wrote to her, and I really wanted to include a Misty-type story in Sector 13. I think we sort of set ourselves a challenge of doing something different and new in each issue. So I contacted Julia, um, said, do you fancy writing a story? And she took a little bit of persuasion. She wasn't sure, but she wrote the story, and then we worked together on it a little bit, and... Um, it was that was a really good process, a really good backwards and forwards process. And I suggested Morgan for the art. She'd seen Morgan's work in previous issues and was very pleased. And he did a fantastic job on it. Um, it's quite interesting to see what he did this time. Morgan's art had been very shadowy before, right? And he sort of took on a new style, um, specifically for this story which I think worked very well. And Will Simpson, of course, you know, 2000 AD artist, probably best known now internationally as one of the sort of storyboard and design artists on Game of Thrones. How did you get him to do a story for you? Will comes to our Tuesday night meetings in the parlour bar for a bit of crack. Oh, great. And in fact, we think that Horse Sense Part 2 will be in the next issue. No, Will's been very supportive. He did a cover for us for the reprint of issue five fantastic cover and we hope to have a strip with him uh, in issue seven and we have other plans in the future that he's involved in as well and i noticed on facebook that john freeman from down the tubes posted something in the last day or two uh, about looking for artists for an upcoming project is that issue seven or is that beyond issue seven that's seven a 7A, yeah, right. That'll be, that'll be a, a sort of an addendum to issue seven. Um, yeah, we're looking for artists uh, for newspaper style strips, a small number of artists for newspaper style strips. Uh, Dave Windet, who is a fantastic artist who's worked on the Dandy and worked on Dino and has a lot of his own stuff out there now. He, he turned in a fantastic job on the first of those strips that we've 
We've just issued one panel of so far, just to let people see, which is a parody of Peanuts. Yes, I saw that one, and it's lovely, the Charlie Brown one. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that was that was a real thrill. I um, that came about very very quickly. I put a post on my I have a Facebook page for uh, that's reserved for creators, basically who've worked either in Sector 13 or my other title, Splank. And I put uh, a plea on it for people to, to help out. Dave replied, and I think we had the strip written and penciled within two days. I just had to finish off the, the inking, and, and that was it. So that was, that was a good experience. Fantastic. So you can find details of Sector 13's magazine at boxofrainmag.co.uk forward slash Sector 13. And look in the show notes for this episode. You'll find that link there. Um, tell us, Peter, also about Splank. What's Splank? Uh, Splank started off as an April Fool's Day joke. I right. wrote a post. On, the first post of my blog was about a comic that I claimed was the Irish version of the old Autumn's comic, Pie, uh, because Pie had become unpopular after featuring the leprechaun on the front cover. And the Irish had been so offended that they had insisted that they had their own version of Splank that didn't feature. Uh, it was entirely fictional. Uh, but then after a while, I decided, why not try and put Splank together? So I produced, at the same time as, as Sector 13, issue 3 came out, I published a 44-page comic called Splank, which is designed to look like an old Autumn's comic um, and features people like Dave Winded again, uh, Nigel Parkinson from The Beano, because Dennis the Menace, quite a few people who would go on to be in Sector 13, like Scott Twills and Cap, Cap Byrne. Uh, but most importantly, it features two stories written by a guy called Mike Higgs. And Mike Higgs wrote and drew a strip called The Cloak in Pow and also in Smash whenever I was seven years old. And it was my favourite comic strip at the time. Uh. And Mike not only drew me into one strip where I am the bad guy, he also drew my first ever comic script as a story, and both of those appear in Splank. So Splank was my hobby. It was it was what I wanted to do. So I'm very proud to have Mike Higgs having drawn a strip for me, and I have the original art of all of it. So that's where Splank came from. Fantastic. Earlier this year, I produced a 150-page downloadable comic available from Get My Comics for 1p, um, that is all the contents of the original Splank plus an extra 110 pages, roughly. Uh, the idea being to raise money for a, an, an NHS charity. Uh, hasn't done quite as well as I'd have liked, but um, it's there. And I have to say I'm very proud of what everybody produced for it. And if anyone wants more details, that's on the Splank tab of, the, um, of our webpage the box of rain mag.co.uk webpage. So there's a splank tab on that as well. 
Excellent. I will put that link in the show notes as well. And then we should, we've already mentioned your blog, uh, which is at splankblog.blogspot.com, um, which is where I got your background information about the history of sports stories in 2000 AD, uh, which, of course, covers Mean Arena. Anything else that we should uh, look out for on your blog? Uh, the blog is is not being used at the moment. I think when Sector Thirteen and the various other comics projects, right. it's sitting there, but it's not been added to. Um, possibly the only other things to mention would be uh, two issues of a comic called Cthulhu Kids with a great artist called Andrew Pauley, um, which is a sort of a cross between Bash Street, the traditional school boarding school story, and Cthulhu Mythos that we produced that that actually probably sold better than anything I've ever been involved in before. But right. then as a friend said, if you put the word Cthulhu on any old tap, it'll sell well. <laughs> so that's there. And finally, I'm involved at the moment with um, Mark McCann, who writes a lot of stories for us and has appeared in Sector 13. And I edit his scripts for a, uh, a series that's appearing under the heavy metal virus imprint. Right. Two issues out. It's called Never Never, and it's a retelling of the Peter Pan story. Oh, I saw, yes, I saw that on your, on the Sector 13 Facebook page. Yes, it's it's looking great. We've two it issues does. out already. Apparently they will be available through uh, comic shops coming the new year, but at the moment they're only available from heavy metal. Right. And the two of us have worked with Will Simpson again and have a story in the next issue of Heavy Metal. Fantastic. It's all been it's all been going very well recently. Excellent, Peter. Well, I shall put links to all of this stuff in the show notes for this episode. Do check it out. Uh, you're a busy chap. I'm lucky I'm retired. Well, I'm glad you've got lots of projects to keep you busy, uh, even in retirement and in lockdown. And I'm glad we finally got round to recording about the Mean Arena because we've been talking about it on and off for a while. So um, great stuff, Peter. Thank you so much for giving up your time and doing it. Thanks very much. Good to, good to finally meet you. And hopefully we'll do it in person at some of the cons at some, some stage next year. I will get to Enniskillen when Enniskillen restarts, yes. Excellent. And there's always there's another Noma you can, should try as well. Sorry, which one was that? There's one in Omar. Rather oh, right. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. The Omar comic uh, convention. Yeah, I will try and get across definitely as soon as we are um, back doing that sort of thing again, which hopefully won't be too long. The vaccines are coming. And thank you to everyone for listening to Megacity Book Club. As ever, find out all the information and all the links at megacitybookclub.com where you'll also find links to Peter's work. Uh, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and on the 2080 forums, or get in touch by emailing me at mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. And that'll do us, Peter. Until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and from Sector 13. Goodbye. Thank you. 